Hi everyone, this is Sarhat. My guest today is the one and only Gokul Rajaram. He is a product builder, founder, operator, investor and advisor. There is so much to talk about with Gokul, but sadly we will have to stick to the duration of the show today. Gokul, welcome to the Curious Learners. It's an honor to have you here. Sarhat, thank you for having me and thank you audience. Excited to be here. So you've been through this whole cycle of building products, founding businesses, investing in them and advising founders on a daily basis, which I know very closely. So what key traits, what key characteristics do you think define a strong early stage founder from your experience? That's a great question, sir. If I, if I think about the key characteristics of excellent early stage founders, I'd say there's three or four. First, they have non-obvious insights about the market. And I think it stems a lot from being deep in the market and deep in the problem statement of the customer. Either spending, basically being in the shoes of the customer, they've experienced that problem either in their work or their life, but they are deeply entrenched in the problem and they're focused on solving a clear problem. So they, and, and it's a non-obvious way. It's different than just a standard way you read about in TechCrunch or somewhere else. So that's first. Second, they balance business slash sales slash go-to-market and product slash technology. I call it a hustler and a hacker. I've seen that good founding teams have combination of both uh, because I've seen founding teams fail when they're too focused on building the product or technology, but not enough on how to take it to market and the vice versa, where they're so good at taking it to market, they don't know exactly how to build a good product. So you need a balance of both. And then I think being able to hire people. I always ask this question, who are your first five hires? If there's just like a couple of you know co-founders and the best answers are where the person has already people who are ready to jump from their existing ships and join the company. And that when those people are great people and when they say, well, I have an engineer from Facebook, an engineer from Uber, engineer from Square, a product manager from Google already ready to join, you know, wow, they've already figured out who these people are and they already have followers. And so I think that's a few things. There's obviously many other things, but non-obvious insights about the market a great combination of building and selling a go-to-market. And third, the ability to hire great talent, even at the early stage. Awesome. And as a quick follow-up, I know your story that you hired 10 people and you let five of them go after a very short period of time. So the first time founder, what do you advise them? So how, how can they actually do that successfully? I would say, first of all, don't be in a hurry to hire. I think my biggest mistakes were where I uh, was too impatient to hire. I said, we have to hire a head to fill this role ASAP. And I overrode any red flags I saw. And so hire slow and fire fast. I think uh, I did the opposite. I hired fast and fired slow. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's one. The second one is, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, which is culture and values are very, very hard to measure, but probably our number one reason that you let people go. I believe that people have, a growth mindset and most people are willing to learn, but sometimes there can be cultural mismatches. For example, at, at our startup, we were a B2B company and our customers, they relied on our software to operate their websites, to operate the e-commerce front end, et cetera. So they could call on us 24 seven. And that means we needed to be available 24 seven to serve them and even on weekends and so on. And uh, we had a mismatch where the person we hired basically would disappear on Fridays and not show up till Monday. 
and that you cannot and we didn't we, i think it was our fault we didn't set that expectation ahead of time because we were so excited to hire this person they are such a great background and they were amazing we were like well i'm sure they'll adjust but turns out they just would disappear and after a few weeks of that we were like look you've got to come into the office on saturday if you need to from a customer point of view and they, they weren't comfortable doing that we had to part ways so i think there are certain non negotiable values in in how you operate as a company that you have to be upfront with the with the with the employee or the prospect otherwise you're doing a disservice to both absolutely no that's a great story then we always talk about founder market fit founder product fit but there is also for early stage businesses employee business employee product fit as well which is quite great, important isn't it great phrase exactly right exactly right awesome i know personally that you speak to founders of your portfolio companies and in fact a funny story but a number of them expressed their surprise to me as to how quickly you get back to them over emails and we will get to talk about your trick there as well uh, but later in the show so what's one area that they need help with most in early stages obviously team building we discussed that but even though they managed to build a very strong team fitting with the culture and everything around it they need advice in a lot of other areas in particular if they are first time founders what is that one or a couple of areas it's interesting in the earliest stages like you said there is three things that every company needs help with one is how to hire and it's not just how to hire it's like exactly what you said what kinds of people should we hire what should or how many people should we hire if you have raised enough funding should you hire 20 engineers should we hire two should we hire five should we hire our first product manager now or six months from now should we hire a head of engineering right now or later should we hire a biz dev person now or later so when to hire who to hire sequence of hiring how many to hire etc there's a big bucket around and how to hire them once we figure out the plan uh, the second piece is around capital who to raise from how much to raise you know should be raised from purely from angels or from seed vcs or from the large platform funds what are the pros and cons of different things and it's so interesting there's so many options of fundraising now and you have almost infinite choices as a founder and you can mix and match and there are pros and cons that you don't even realize till later when you have say a large platform fund who's doing a 250k check in your seed round what are the implications of that for later rounds it's hard to know ahead of time when you get excited by a brand and you take a small check from them what does it mean for you later so a lot of question on capital and then finally around the business itself i would say the the most even though like i said most teams are balanced Uh, should be balanced on product development and go to market the reality is almost every team has a bias towards either product development or towards go to market so the ones that are more uh, strong in product development have a lot of questions about going to market how do we go to market how do we get our first customers do we use a bottoms up product product led growth approach do we go top down or do we use a mix of both how do i get my first few customers can you make intros for me to customers etc and then on the other side the folks who are very strong on go to market maybe don't have as much of a product dna they have a lot of question how do i build a product what's the mvp look like at what point should i launch what is enough how much how remarkable should it be etc so those those are the buckets it's people hiring a lot of questions there capital fundraising and then either combination of product development or or go to market as a quick follow up to hiring the way to think about is obviously not necessarily hiring in isolation so when you make a hire you really have to think about you know the the organization itself the big picture whether that person is needed whether that role is actually needed then back to the funding point 
Actually, I had a discussion with a VC friend of mine today. So whether you go to some of those big VC names who will take up the entire round and obviously it looks great on your TechCrunch article when the news comes out. But from a support perspective, from a value add perspective, it doesn't necessarily translate into a great value add, right? So however big name that VC is. So that there is actually quite a subtle point there that as to picking the right VCs or right group of VCs who could help you the most. And I always say the same thing. If you are an early stage company, let's say you have one single customer. If actually VC makes you an introduction and brings you an, another customer, they help you double the business, right? So from one customer to, to two customers. So that is so much important. And maybe in later stages, big brand names help you with momentum and credibility and everything. But in early stage, I guess it's critical to pick the right VC with the most value add. So you help a lot, you know, your founders on, on all of these fronts. But do you think, is there any trend in terms of choosing VCs, whether transitioning from maybe big name VCs to smaller ones, and there is a big movement of solo GP funds, micro VCs, et cetera. So do you observe anything like that? I think at all stages, you do see now a lot of operators raising funds. So uh, you essentially have, and even at the later stage, so you, I think the rise of solo GPs is probably one of the most interesting trends where uh, they move much faster than a VC firm because they don't have a partnership to go to. They can deploy capital much faster. And in many cases, they can be just as value-add. They don't take board seats, which is a pro or a con, depending on what you want as a company. But they are much faster, more flexible to work with. And they give you a brand name. You don't have to. And what is interesting is, I think, the large venture firms still don't truly think of them as competition because they think, oh, it's an individual. But the reality is that these individuals actually become like firms. They are beating out other firms and winning deals. Uh, which the firm otherwise would have won. So I think they are going to be a disruptive force for years to come. As you see more and more operators, they, you have a lot of operators running companies, raising funds now. And that I think uh, they're attractive to entrepreneurs for many, many reasons. Because ultimately, like you said, Sarhat, it's about not just the firm, but about the partner, especially in the early stage, because the partner is who's going to be the representation or manifestation of the firm in your company. They're the one who's going to be spending time with you, the other one who's going to be hopefully adding value, helping you, counseling you, et cetera. So I always recommend people to look beyond the firm brand and look at who the partner is. That's much, much more important than the firm itself, in my opinion. So in terms of range of matters that they come to you with for advice, so how does it change uh, as the businesses mature? Obviously, the scale is different. The funding need is much larger, et cetera, which is obvious. But w- what is one thing that you see as the founders and businesses mature? The biggest, biggest one I see as companies grow is around org structure, around executive hiring, and around strategy. So strategy, org, and executive leadership hiring, especially I think because of my background in product, I get a lot of uh, folks coming to me because they're all trying to figure out, especially founders who are product-driven or product uh, managers themselves or ex-product people, they struggle with figuring out when to hire a head of product, if they should hire a chief product officer or a head of product, when they should hire it, how they should hand over the reins, et cetera. So I have a lot of discussion around hiring a head of product or head of engineering, what the right time is. I have strong beliefs on titles, so a lot of discussion on when to give titles or whatnot. And, and then how to, how to scale the org. A lot of, one of the challenges CEOs face is that they might have a lot of functional leaders reporting to them, but ultimately the CEO is responsible for the goals of the company, 
the business goals of the company. The CEO is like, how do I run the company? I have the goals, but then I'm delegating these, splitting up these goals in between all these leaders. But then I'm the one who's responsible for pulling it all together. How do I run an org when I'm also managing this team, trying to be a responsible for goals, raising capital? How do I split my time? So partly also, I guess, exec or CEO coaching. One of my late stage founders, a Series D company asked me, Gokul, what's the role of a CEO? I was like, hang on, you're asking me this after five years of being a CEO? <laughs> but, but like literally, I think sometimes you have this existential question because your role as a CEO has changed dramatically after every round because now you're leading a 500-person company versus you're leading a 10-person company and you can't operate the same way. What do you do? What do you do differently at a 500-person company? So their own role existentially, et cetera. So they didn't sign up for it or they didn't even think about it. And here they are suddenly organically now it's a 500-person company. What do they do now? No, that, that's fascinating. Obviously, although they've been the CEO for the last five years, they're the first time CEO for a D, Series D stage company, right? So it's a different exactly. sort of level than, than the early stages. That's that's great. So at Google, you built the foundation of the ad business and then you founded a business, sold it to Facebook. You did something similar in there. And then you have incubated excellent projects inside other businesses. And now you do that DoorDash. If you were to choose one single thing in terms of building a product, what is the most important thing? Because we talked a bit about building a company, hiring, organization, et cetera. What is the role of a CEO? But first and foremost, you need to have a product which is catering to the needs of your customers. What is the most important thing in that phase? Remarkability. What I mean by that is it solves a customer problem in a way that is unique, different, and much better on the dimension that the customer cares about than every alternative. So if you, again, compare Google to AltaVista, Facebook to MySpace, or, or Square to payment processors before it, or DoorDash to food delivery alternative before it, they were not perfect, any of these products, but they were remarkable and significantly better on a dimension that people cared about. And they knew exactly what customer problem they were solving, and focus on that problem and solving it much better. So I think Google, when it came out, was, as you know, a simple piece of, I mean, it was there was no design. It was simply a text box that you could type in. When you type into it, it was like 100x better than anything that existed. Facebook, again, Mark Zuckerberg wrote all the HTML and the whole website. It was a PHP, so PHP code. But it was just so much better and easier to understand what was going on in your friend's world than anything before it authentically in an authentic way. And the same for Square, the same for DoorDash. I think ultimately we, we forget that a product, the role of a product is to solve a problem for a customer. So you need to understand who your customer is and figure out what their number one problem is that you're trying to solve and really make sure you're solving that problem much better than anyone else has ever done before. Awesome. When you look at an opportunity as an investor, you have this unfair advantage of building excellent products in your past. I think you draw from that experience. But when you see something new in an area which is not necessarily you know, familiar to you, how do you actually get to reach a conviction around remarkability? So what's your process in your mental model, in your decision-making process to assess that? I think it's a good question. You do it two ways, depending on how much time you have. First, you do it by directly asking the entrepreneur. You ask them, how's it? Why is what you've built 10x or 100x better than anything else that exists out there? And then you try to dig deeper into what are the things that people care about? How do you know that people care about this? Try to understand how they have lived. Hopefully the answer, uh, as a, uh, the best answers are ones where they have lived the problem themselves. So they were a buyer of a certain kind of product or service. And they basically saw, here's, here's all these solutions that existed out there. 
but they were much worse. They didn't solve the problem because of X, Y, Z. And so they are taking uh, aim at a certain problem. If you have more time, you go and talk to the customers, the actual buyers or customers, not even buyers, the customers are using the product and you try to better understand, okay, what are, and you want to talk to sophisticated customers, right? I think you, the, the, you want to talk to sophisticated customers, you want to ask them, what, are you experiencing this problem? Is it a top three problem for you? And then what are the solutions you evaluated and how do they fall short? And so that's, those are the two vectors. I don't have, because I just talk to entrepreneurs, I don't have the bandwidth to diligence like a firm would. So I really try to get that, elicit that answer from the entrepreneur. And ultimately it's a bet on the entrepreneur anyway. If they're BSing me, you know what? It's my inability to fully suss that out, but I'm hopeful that they're being truthful and authentic and I take them on face value. And some of them, you maybe don't get the same outcome, but really I ask exactly that question around, why is this remarkable? Why is it different? And then I try to see they're a student of history. And in many cases, they will explain to me, look, over the last five years, this industry has evolved in these ways. People have tried to solve these things. I also ask them previous attempts to solve this problem might have failed or might not have succeeded. Why? Why do you think this is? So the more credibly they can answer the question of why they're different from all the other companies that have tried to solve this problem and why they're better, the more confidence I have in the company. Your schedule is very busy, but also you make a lot of time for founders, for people reaching out to you for advice. You're very generous in, in making time for others. What's the backstory to this? Does it have anything to do with your growing up? So what do you recall from those days, which makes you who you are today? I think you are right that I, I can't turn away a founder who's asking me for help. And I try to at the very least email them something that could be helpful and hopefully do a call or something like that. And, and the reason is because I came up through the US for grad school and over the last 20 years, there have been people that have just helped me without any expectation. And I've had so many people just help me. And I think it's true for all of us. And I wouldn't be where, you know, whatever I've accomplished is because of people who helped me without any expectation of me helping them in any other way. And I think the universe works, works like that. I believe in the concept of karma, where when you do something good, a good deed, it comes back in a different way. You don't even know when. And so I think the best way to live, and you also feel good about yourself selfishly. So the more selfless you are, and the more you can pay it forward and just help people, with the expectation of reward, I feel that ultimately good things happen, you know, to you or your family or whatever the case is. And so I think it's the most selfish thing in some ways to basically be just selfless. So I just try to help people and hopefully it encourages them to help other people. And hopefully that's how the world works if, if people can help each other. Excellent. I'll go into a quick tangent here in terms of product building and scaling. As everyone knows, you are known as the godfather of AdSense at, at Google. And from your experience, what's your view on the current landscape of marketing, the toolbox that the founders or CMOs and the teams use to hack their growth story? Do you think they are being creative enough to do that? And what do you advise your founders to do? Obviously, it would be different for different kinds of businesses, B2C, B2B, etc. But what's the general framework to think about marketing to scale up? I think what has, unfortunately, over the last several years, uh, founders have become drunk on, on buying paid advertising on Facebook's other platforms. I think most of the, especially the B2C founders out there have uh, 90% of their new customers coming from paid ads and, and buying media. Unfortunately, what has happened is this uh, has all come to a head because of Apple's restrictions now on tracking and that has massively increased uh, CAC and CPA on Facebook and other platforms as a result. And every founder I know 
whether investors and them or not, is asking themselves, what do we do now? I think what founders need to get back to is essentially investing in organic channels. They're slower, harder to do. They're not as instant, like a quick hit, like you spend some money and you get, whether it's SEO, whether it's building followers on and you know, publishing content, referral programs, word of mouth, influencers, all of those things, you need to refocus on building that. And I always feel a good rule of thumb is that 40 to 50% of your new customers should be coming organically and 40 to 50% should be coming to paid media. I think it had tilted too much to 90% coming to paid media, 10% organically. Square, even till the day of IPO, and I think even after the IPO a few years, and even today, I think 40 to 50% of Square's customers come organically. And uh, I think you've got to invest in that organic channel. It's very hard. You'll have to go through many, many iterations to get it right, but that's your channel. That's, that's No one can take it away from you. And so organic channels, I think, are were neglected. And now, unfortunately, because of the, uh, the tracking changes, maybe fortunately, uh, <laughs> you've got to invest in them and rebuild them. When you left Google and started your own business, I read that you said you missed working in a small team. And perhaps that was one consideration that you had starting your own business. It's critical to maintain the culture as we briefly discussed it. Yet successful startups has grow exponentially in the size of their team as well. It's a dilemma, if you will, to maintain the team culture. What is key from your experience to, to maintain the culture from the very early days? Yeah. I think uh, culture, I think of it as almost your immigration rules. Who are the people you let in? What are the rules that you want, that you want people to follow? And the culture ultimately comes from behaviors. So I think it's uh, easy to say our culture will be X, Y, Z. But A, if the leader of the leader of leaders of the company don't embody those same behaviors, for example, you could say we have to be customer centric. But if you don't talk to customers at all, as the founder, you don't exhibit that. You can say all that you want, your employees will see it and say, well, They're not talking it. So I think, A, you've got to walk the talk. And before you ever say anything, even put a value in, you've got to exhibit that behavior every single day. And B, you've got to be willing to fire people who don't follow that culture or who are not good fits with the culture or don't, don't are not good fits with values. I think there's many teams that keep, quote unquote, star employees at the company and don't fire them uh, because they're like, well, they are the best engineer. They're an exception. And of course, the more exceptions you make, the more people realize it's all hollow. It's just talk and no action. So I think if you do those two things, whatever you do, you've got to enforce it through hiring and firing and through behavior and following it. Excellent. And again, back to back to the early days of, of a company's journey. In terms of product market fit, sometimes what we see is that founders continue uh, to spend marketing dollars on their way to find product market fit. And you can always falsify this story a bit, you know, you are almost at the edge of product market fit because you keep spending anyway. So you acquire a certain level of customers. However, in reality, perhaps it's mostly quote unquote buying them. So it's not necessarily evidence of product market fit. So when you look at, you know, opportunities from an investor's perspective at very early stage, so what's your mental model in terms of concluding that the company achieved product market fit? It will again be different in terms of KPIs, et cetera, for different businesses. But how do you convince yourself that the product market fit is achieved? For me, it's all about retention. A little bit about acquisition, but it's all about retention. If I see strong retention, where there's a, a small group, and it doesn't need to be a big group, a small group of people who love and use the product on a daily, weekly basis, whatever the frequency of usage for the product should be, uh, and, and they retain over a couple of months, two, three months without churning off, that shows to strong retention. Now, 
the actual retention numbers are different, different by the market you're in. If you're a food delivery company, your retention numbers are different than if you're an enterprise SaaS company. But you, you need to, whatever it is you're building, you need to show good retention. I think retention is the Absolutely. first, first, first thing I look for for PMF. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. Switching gears again, it's a good transition point to your investing experience. So I think everyone sees you in these TechCrunch articles and in the news as an investor in wide ranging startups in different sectors, different geographies. But if you were to summarize, what's your investing thesis? Because you do invest in early stage as well as late stage businesses. What's your thesis? How do you summarize it? Investing in exceptional founders, building remarkable products. And so I, I truly believe that companies, even through IPO and beyond, are a bet on the founder. Even today, I would argue that Meta is a bet on Mark Zuckerberg and, and basically his leadership on steering the company forward and this for a $600 billion company. And so I think it never stops being a bet on the founder. So at every stage, you're betting on the founder. Whenever I interviewed at companies who work for myself, a lot of my calculus was, yeah, is this founder someone I trust to work for and build an amazing company. I had the opportunity to interview with Larry Page at Google, with Mark at Facebook, with Jack at Square, and with Tony at DoorDash. And so all of them I saw essentially, and they were all multi-billion dollar companies and I interviewed with them. They were not small companies, but I still believed, and I still do. All of them basically have the ability to build 10X, 100X bigger companies than they do. And they have the vision, the ambition, and the determination and drive and grit needed to, they're, they're going to be at the companies for 10, 15 more years or hopefully longer to build that. So that's the kind of founder. I think once you get that founder, you back them almost regardless of what the space is. To be honest, my biggest mistakes have been where I focus too much on the space and not enough on the founder. When I'm like, oh, you know, founder is good, but the space is crappy or whatever it is or too crowded. The reality is that's all good. But if the founder is exceptional, they will find a way. They will find a way. They will even pivot. They will pivot to a different space or they'll find a subspace within that space that they can, for, I'll give you a good example. There was a great founder, a uh, good colleague of mine from Google, David Friedberg. This is in 2007, 2008. He started a company called Weatherbill. Weatherbill was around using forecasts to sell insurance. And he started by selling insurance. He was incredible. He graduated from Berkeley, I think at 17 or 18 with a degree in astrophysics, was the youngest member on Google's Corp Dev team. Amazing, brilliant thinker. And I would have invested in him, but then he started in the space weather bill, which was selling insurance to golf, like golf courses, movie theaters, trying to say, well, if rain happens, you, you won't get people to so buy insurance. It was slow going. And so I'm sad to say I didn't invest in the company. And, and basically they ended up working to a company called Climate Corporation, which basically sold that insurance to farmers and grew like a rocket ship and was bought for a billion dollars with Monsanto. And he was a lot of VCs in the Valley, he'll tell you, said no to him, you know, and I think he, it was tough for him to raise his hand, but I, sh I knew who he was. I knew what he was capable of. I should have invested in him blindly, whatever he was doing. And so those kinds of mistakes are what, because when you invest, you can lose at most one X your money, but the opportunity to invest in a friend, someone you know very well, someone you think highly of, I mean, that's what I don't want to lose. So I always invest in great people, regardless of what company they're building. When I speak to founders as well, with obviously much less experience than you have, I say the same thing. So execution, hence the team, the founder, it beats ideal market and anything else really at any stage of the business, including the IPO, as you said, in fact. Continuing along the point of being a, a, a good investor, pattern matching is critical, right? That is only something that you can accumulate 
over time. And you also, as, as mentioned, invest across different sectors, different stages, etc. But how, how do you, in a literal sense, how do you manage to pattern match when you see something new? What's your process really to make a decision? I know your focus on founders, but from your previous success stories or mistakes, as you just mentioned, how do you approach the problem? What's the process? Okay, this is a great question, Sarhat, and one of my favorite topics because problem solving is the core of product development. To start with, I think of problem solving framework as always starting with outcomes, starting from outcomes. You can start with business outcomes like revenue, profit, et cetera, but the better outcomes to start with is change in customer behavior. Because remember, change in customer behavior is what leads to any kind of change in business metrics. For example, if you can get more customers to visit your website, that's a change in customer behavior and that'll lead to more revenue eventually. Or if you can get more customers to go from your homepage of your website to signing up for your service, that lead to more new customers being signed up. Or if you can get more customers, use your service on a daily basis, et cetera. So almost anything, you should try to figure out how you can somehow map it to a change in customer behavior uh, relative to your product or service. So you start with that outcome, a customer outcome, as I call it. Then once you figure out what the outcome is, you ensure that you use structured brainstorming to explore all the different solutions and options that can lead to that same outcome. Many times what people do is, they'll basically be lazy about not mapping solutions to outcomes. So there, is, there are various mapping tools where you, you have the circle at the top where you say, this is the problem you're trying to solve the outcome. And then you have these leaf nodes. Each of all of them solve the problem. Many times people compare alternatives or solutions to different, different outcomes. And so you, you've got to then make sure that you're comparing things properly. And then you need, you could also, I think one of the interesting things you also forget is that there could be different segments of customers who have different behaviors. So sometimes you might need to segment customers. For example, if you have three different types of customers at Square, for example, we focus a lot on restaurants. We had lots of small businesses, two or five million small businesses, but then restaurants were a specific segment and they had different behaviors than a retailer, than a service provider. And so we needed to think about those three segments differently. But then you need a way to rank solutions to an outcome. So ranking solutions, you can use a framework like RICE. I like RICE, which is, reach, impact, confidence, and effort. How many people can you reach with this solution? How many people will this impact? How, how much will this impact the goal overall? Uh, whether it's medium, massive, high, low, et cetera. Confidence, how confident are you in your estimate of impact? And then effort, how many person months of work will this take to build or, or implement? And so you basically have the notion of an outcome, structured brainstorming to come with solutions, and then a way to rank solutions. And then you start with a, highest ranked solution and you say that's my hypothesis that that this solution is going to change this customer outcome by this much and then you have a way to hopefully run a quick experiment to see if that is going to impact or not before you fully build it. that's the other thing i think i really encourage companies to build lightweight experimental frameworks and try to come up with even things that don't involve a full build to see what is can directionally can you get a sense of the solution, is it actually going to move the outcome of what you thought it's going to? In your investing career, you have seen many cycles, both macro or industry or regional specific. And how have you observed the cycle in the last two years in COVID? What trends have you seen? And also to the point of consumer behavior, as you mentioned, which is critical in your decision-making process as well. What is maybe some additions from the last two years to your investing thesis as to how consumer behavior might have changed? I think this is not really consumer behavior, but I think the biggest long-term impact of all of this, I think is going to be that 
people that the labor market is not globally accessible to anyone, any company from anywhere. I mean, prior to this, I don't think we'd ever have thought that we'd be essentially working with colleagues globally and any, any company can hire from anywhere in the world. And now you and I both have seen companies where we would never have imagined investing in without meeting them. And now we're making decisions after a Zoom call with someone sitting 12, 12 hours away from us. And it's true for companies also. So I think the democratization of labor and capital, I think is probably going to be one of the biggest long-term effects where I, my, I invest in was almost 95% in the US before COVID. Now it's basically 50-50 almost US versus non-US. And I think it's probably true for everyone. And same, I mean, the, the, the companies I invest in, almost every company now is comfortable with people not just in the same time zone, not just in the same office, but ideally globally, and at least across multiple time zones. So that I think has massive profound implications of where people live, where they work, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things. And I think that response brings us to the point of decentralized world and blockchain, right? So you and I talk about crypto and exchange ideas quite often. And I know you've been spending a lot of time yourself in the blockchain space making investments. And I guess your also board see that Coinbase perhaps gives you a front seat to discuss and, you know, see what's coming new. But what part of the blockchain space are you the most interested in? Is it, you know, DeFi, NFTs, or the underlying infrastructure that's being built? What are you most excited about? For me, it's uh, today, it's infrastructure and tooling for Web3. I'm seeing that almost every part of the Web2 infrastructure layer is being rebuilt for Web3. But there's analytics, messaging, CRM, even like AWS for Web2 is now rebuilt with, with companies like Alchemy and so on. But essentially, it's essentially infrastructure and tooling. And I think there's a massive opportunity to rethink infrastructure and tooling so that Web3 developers can build faster and can have all the ability that Web2 uh, developers have. But the second one, I would say, Sarhat, is also community. One thing I realized over the last one or two years is how important to have a strong community around a product. I think uh, if the community in Web3, whether it's the NFT creators or any kind of Web3 product, NFT creators, liquidity providers, or software developers is not successful, you're, you're basically NGMI, as to say, not going to make it. I think community first is a Web3 mantra. And I realized, I didn't fully realize it till about a year, two years ago, but I now realize that the successful projects all have strong communities around them. So crazily enough, a lot of product development efforts around improving the community, which is things like protocol design, you know, tokenomics, user safety, security, community engagement, all of those things versus purely focused on like, you know, engagement acquisition in the standard terms. So I think product developers have to be as much community builders as product developers. Absolutely. I think community is the most critical element of, of this new world. And I had the opportunity to host a number of Web3 founders on the Curious Learners. And in every episode was the same thing. They seem to exercise an excellent, you know, community management 101 crash course in all of their Discord channels, Telegram channels, etc. You know, the founders respond to every single comment, every single question coming from the users of the product, etc. So that's certainly a big, big change. And so you sit on the boards of very interesting companies, Coinbase. Pinterest. What's the most interesting part of being a board member? So what, what have you learned from sitting on these boards alongside exceptional people like yourself? So which maybe you might not have had the opportunity to learn elsewhere in your experience? Thank you. Thank you, Sarat, for that uh, question. I have been lucky to serve on the boards of many, many interesting companies over the past decade. I think the most interesting part of being a board member for me 
is that you get to think about the big picture. So instead of very much focused on it, when you work at a company, you're very focused on operational stuff. How do I hit my quarterly annual goals, setting goals, hitting them, et cetera. You do think about the big picture once in a while, but as a board member, you're constantly thinking about the big picture. What lies ahead about the company strategy? Is it positioned well? What are the capabilities the company have? What does it need to build? And so the kinds of discussion you have as part of good boards and the kind of engagement and collaboration you can have with the CEO and with the management team is really like, it's, it's incredible. It's empowering, impactful, it's energizing. You obviously have to have a fiduciary duty, you have a governance duty, but a lot of it is about thinking big and pushing the company to make sure that they have the right capabilities built for the next, not just next year, but for the next five or 10 years. You studied engineering and then you were an operator, you were a builder. And I, I know you might feel the temptation to go into operational details, the nitty gritty things about a business when you sit on the board. And it looks like you now have uh, learned avoiding that temptation uh, successfully, obviously, over the long term of your board experience. But if I were to ask you, and this is literally a question that I ask for my own benefit, what's your key advice to be an effective board member? I would tell exactly, like I said, I would probably tell the younger, younger Gokul from 10 years ago to spend less time on the operational aspects of the business that come up during a board discussion and maybe even avoid going in that direction, weighing, on the, weighing in on them unless I was explicitly called upon or if they were clearly in my area of core competence. Instead, I should try to really help the discussion stay at strategic and bigger picture levels. That's the primary responsibility of the board in addition to corporate governance, being an advisor to CEO and CEO succession planning. And, and fiduciary stuff. Really, how's the company positioned over the next one, two, five, 10 years? What are the capabilities? Is the company going in the right direction, both from a leadership point of view, the strategy point of view, the product point of view? What are the new product areas do we need to invest in today? Capabilities, people to help us be an effective company over the next five, 10 years. So really, I, that's the push because CEOs always, when they work with their management teams, they get pulled into the day-to-day. Our job as a board is to push them to think around the corner, to think one, two, five years out and, and have, and the board meeting is the opportunity for all of us to do that together collectively. Absolutely. And Gokul, you, you as mentioned briefly in the beginning about your rules to respond to emails. So, but more broadly, you are really good at hacking productivity in your daily schedule. I don't know how you did, but you know, apparently you did very well. So what, what tactics do you have to increase productivity during the day? Again, this is a question for my benefit than, than anything else. Sarhad, I feel you're also extremely responsive. I'm curious to ask you that question, but <laughs> I've been constantly rejiggering my email routine. I think we all live in email and the less we can treat our email as an inbox, the better. So what I've started doing is essentially treating my email inbox as what I call a triage room. So when an email comes in, I either respond to it. If I, if I read, I'll always read the email before I do anything with it. If I feel that I can respond to it in five minutes or less, I'll just respond to it right then. Or I will move it to a to-do list. So I have a label called to-do and I'll just label it to-do and I'll just move it. So it'll be out of my inbox. It's just a label. It's no complex thing. So I have a to-do label and inbox is simply to move. And then I have a read later, which is just something, a newsletter or something that I want to read a piece of content, but there's nothing to do there. And then I spend a lot of my time. So this checking, I do like three, four times a day, but a lot of my time I'm in the to-do folder, which is really a to-do list. And I have my own to-do list, which I've written on a little uh, notebook. I have a Moleskine notebook I carry around. So those, a merger of those two is what I work on as my to-do list. The other tool I use is calendaring. When I have to get something done, 
I just calendar a piece of time so that I block time for myself, my future self to say, no, that one hour, you're just going to do this. This way it forces me to not be able to schedule anything. And it could even be true as like fitness or working out, you know, like have a block of time that you've scheduled. So you force your future self. It's good for your future self. Too. So you're basically helping your future self by giving your future self time to work on things that matter. This was such a great conversation. Every time I speak to you, I really enjoy that. And this was so special as well. We are going to wrap up soon. But my closing question for everyone is, what are you most curious about these days? And what are you doing to learn more about it? Great question. If that's your closing question, I mean, that I guess curious learners, right? Exactly. That makes perfect sense. I'm a fairly eclectic learner. I have a lot of interests. So I'll give you the last three books I've read, uh, which can give you a sense of the things I'm interested in. One of them the most recent one is a book called The Power Law by a guy called Sebastian Malaby. It is the, arguably the best history of venture capital that I've ever read. It's awesome. The Power Law. The book before that I read was one called The Corner Office by Adam Bryant. And it is a very good insights on leadership derived from Adam Bryant used to write a column for the New York Times interviewing CEOs. So he synthesized decades of interviews with CEOs around what drives peak performance, what are great CEOs all about. And then finally, I love reading autobiographies and biographies. So I led a book called Rafa, which is the autobiography of Rafael Nadal, uh, who's an incredible tennis player. And I just, not, he won his 21st Grand Slam. So I said, you know what? He's now formally become the Grand Slam leader. Let me read his autobiography. <laughs> so that's, that's, those are the last three books. So you can see it's fairly eclectic. The first one you mentioned, Power Love, is actually what I'm reading on my Kindle right now. There you go. But, Perfect. Uh, but, Great minds. But, Absolutely. And the other two, uh, I think they, they would be very easily my next two books. Uh, thanks for the suggestion there, Gokul. So this has been um, a, a great episode. First, for me, I got to learn from you yet again, right? So every time I speak to you, that happens anyways. But I'm sure this uh, episode will be extremely helpful for a lot of founders and operators out there. Thank you very much again, Gokul, for making the time for this. Uh, it was a great honor to have you on The Curious Learners. Thank you very much, Sarhad. It was awesome and hope it was helpful. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again. Thank you. Same here.